Hello and welcome to Works Broken, a podcast by Niall O'Carroll in association with Pep Talk, and I'm the producer, Gus Ryan. Niall is a qualified psychologist, sports psychologist and business coach, and he's also the chief of global partnerships at Pep Talk. Over the past decade, Niall has been responsible for developing and driving high performance programs in corporate and sporting organizations around the world. Some of his clients include world champions, Olympians, and some of the most successful sales teams in business. In this week's conversation, Niall is joined by Karen Volo, an expert in engagement, career, personal and organisational development. Her main purpose and passion is to bring joy to the workplace. She is a co-author of the international best-selling book Engage, and she has a particular skill of making the concepts of cultural transformation come alive for audiences. Karen has a remarkable personal story of struggle, acceptance and development after being held for almost four years in jail for crimes she did not commit. We joined the conversation with Karen explaining to Niall exactly what her title Chief Joybringer means. So, so maybe, I mean, I, on a very simple level, maybe the obvious place to start is just tell me a little bit about the work you do, the, the book you wrote, you know, the, 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 the wonderful title of Chief Joybringer. Help me understand that. Yeah, um, as far as I know, I think I'm the only one on the planet with that title. And, um, you know, I really do. The purpose of my company is bringing joy to the workplace. So I run a company called Evolution Academy. Mm -hmm. And we work with cultural transformation, um, basically through building trust that increases productivity and engagement inside of the organization. So culture is really a bit of the foundation of um, creating a really inspiring and, and enthusiastic workforce. So that's a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the work that we do with Evolution. And, um, you know, we work with global companies and uh, now with the whole pandemic um, inf- that's happened, we basically are doing everything online as well. Mm-hmm. So it's been fun to be able to uh, make a bit of that transition. Yeah. And how do you, how do you deliver, like what... When <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of thinking about like the fact that you know the corporate world can be very jaundiced in some ways. I mean, somebody's coming to the door talking about bringing joy to the workplace. How do you? Uh, I'm sure you hit roadblocks and challenges. How do you navigate that, or or what is it that that hooks people into what you're offering? You know, over the years, I have found that um, when I work with leaders who understand the value and importance of the people and creating a culture where people can thrive it's quite easy to do this work. If the Mm -hmm. leaders do not buy into that, then I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's, they're not our ideal clients to work with because um, you do have to have the management buy-in for, for this type of work, Mm -hmm. but there's so much research now and I'm always staying on top of the latest research in terms of, you know, what kind of an impact it has on the bottom line. And so I can really show, you know, the impact if you work with engagement strategically or building trust, this is what kind of an impact has, for example, trust, um, high trust organizations outperform low trust organizations by 300%. So it's documented, it's, you know, factual. And then, you know, when people start to realize that, then, um, then things start to happen. For sure. Yeah. And, and it is really interesting because obviously like my background uh, prior to my current role has been in the sports world, but I would argue it's exactly the same. It's, it's the same principles of a high performing sport environment. It's where there's high trust. And, and one thing that I, I find really interesting, and it's something that, that I'm not sure how it's been missed over the years, but it's that idea that relationships between management and staff is so important. 
And when you have a personal, if, if your people feel like you care, if they think you give a shit about them, they're more likely to deliver on the performance expectations of them. And as you talk about with a low trust environment, a lot of that time is because people don't believe that management give a stuff. Um, and how do, you, how do you get around that? Like with, with some organizations, they'll bring you in, but it will be a token gesture to tick a box and you're not having an impact. So how do you kind of approach going into an organization where you know in your heart the culture is not quite there? What, what, what is it the message you try to get across that actually can have some traction? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I'd, I'd like to just comment on your comment about caring because what I'm finding with building trust is that even underneath the layer of trust that you have in an organization, if people don't generally care about each other, it's not going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. um, people are just, they're disengaged, they're coming in, they're doing their work and going home and they don't really care either. So you really have to have this um, connection between management and staff. And what I find in most companies is that top management tends to be really engaged, they're excited, they've got the vision, the, the, the values, everything there. And then there's a big gap between, and generally it's kind of the middle management that, um, you know, needs a lot of help. So one of the things with all of our trainings is that they're basically designed to work on an individual level as well as a team or organizational level, which means that people go through a personal transformation. They start, and and it's based in neuroscience. A lot of what we teach is neuroscience. And so what I found over the years is that when people learn the neuroscience stuff behind trust and what's really going on on a neurochemical basis in your body, we're all human beings. Mm. And when you can relate as a human to human, transformation starts to happen. So that's where the impact really comes in because, as I often say, you can't unlearn what you learn when it comes to the neuroscience. And and by doing it this way, it makes kind of what's invisible visible so that we can actually start to measure it and track it and see what kind of an impact we have, both with relationships, but you know, increasing um, the levels of trust and, and creating these really meaningful conversations inside of an organization. And it is, it is remarkable. And I love the fact that you go back to kind of science and data to kind of back up the fact that these things matter. I thought really interesting, um, um, Satya Nadella, who's uh, basically the leadership guru in Microsoft and and. When he took over, he um, insisted on Microsoft implementing a growth mindset philosophy across the whole organization. What is very interesting is you, know, you hear all the anecdotal evidence of how Microsoft is a much better place to work because it has become much more about people having conversations with each other and listening and asking questions and learning and being open to the fact that you don't have to know everything. And you know, if, you have, if you hire somebody with expertise in a certain area, let them do it. You don't have to micromanage, you know, trust them to do their job. That's why you hired them. But one of the knock-on effects of that was that Microsoft's share price for 14 years before he took over had been stagnant. And in the six years um, since he took over, it actually has tripled, I think, their, their share prices. So, you know, there's clear correlation between a shift in the culture of the organization and a financial benefit or a productivity benefit to the organization. So with, with, with that in mind, when, when you're going in, and I mean, I would see this with our work as well, is that it's, you know, sometimes middle management get all the crap. But seeing senior leaders get these ideas, let's, let's introduce these, you know, like initiatives like yours or something like, like with us with Pep Talk and introduce a well-being app. And then it's dumped on middle management who have had no part in the conversation around bringing it in and told, go and implement that. 
And one of the things I get all the time from people is, from middle managers especially, is that we don't have time for this stuff. We're so busy. We're so busy just trying to get through our day-to-day. We haven't got time to introduce this stuff. If you get that kind of an argument when you're talking about the, the, the work that you do with them, what's your response to that? Well, first of all, I mean, if a company invests in the training, then it's up to the individual to, to show up and partake in that. So the people that are really interested in that, um, they do take it as a bit of a, a gift in the sense that they can develop themselves. And that, that is really what it is, I think, when, when companies invest in developing their leaders. Everybody's stressed right now, especially middle management. They have a lot on their plate. But what we teach actually overlays. So once they, as long as they show up, they will learn tools that they can just start to play with and experiment with on a day-to-day basis. And so it mm-hmm. doesn't interrupt with their day-to-day work. It basically gives them more tools to empower them to be able to handle whatever situations come up. And so they mm-hmm. start to play with the tools every week when you know they're going through our training. And it's interesting to see what happens because they start to see results much faster that they, they weren't expecting just because they tested some of these things. Yeah, and, and isn't it a thing that with a lot of the with a lot of these tools, once they're implemented, what you're actually doing is buying yourself time back because you're not wasting time on a lot of the rubbish that you get caught up in in a day to day. Yeah, oftentimes that is the case, and it's interesting because um, we had one participant from a very large consulting company who was taking the training at the same time she was doing her um, annual reviews with her people. And because she was able to ask more powerful questions, she saved herself so much time, exactly like you're saying, because she was getting to the core, you know, whatever she needed to get out of that conversation Mm -hmm. at that time. And uh, so she wrote and said, you know, she was just so much more productive because she was able to get really to the root of things much faster Mm -hmm. and build trust while she was doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what what would be um what would be kind of an example of of kind of a, a tool or the way you would work with somebody to help them unlock their ability to engage with their staff? Um, well, we're on a audio, so we can't do any visuals here, but I'll try yeah. and describe it. So, yeah. um, I take the extremes of a low trust versus a high trust, and um, you know, when you have low trust, what's activating in your brain is generally your back reptilian brain, your amygdala, you may get adrenaline running through your body. Mm. And it takes 24 hours for that adrenaline to get through your body. So you can't actually reach your creativity, your higher levels of thinking when you're acting from your lower brain or your, your, Mm. you know, reptilian brain, basically. When you have high trust, you're actually using a different part of your brain, which is Mm -hmm. the prefrontal cortex. It's like kind of behind your forehead, basically. And that's where oxytocin is produced. So Mm -hmm. you get oxytocin, serotonin, all these positive neurochemicals, and it opens up your mind to be able to see things in a much farther perspective. You're able to connect to people in a much better, um, deeper level. And you're also able to tap into creative ideas and, and just things flow. So -hmm. you have better relationships when you can get yourself into those neurochemicals of producing oxytocin on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll I'll give you a really good example here because this is one of my favorite examples to share, but um, we had a partner of a large consulting company take our uh, cultural engagement certification. So she hadn't even taken the, the deep trust training at that point, but she'd learned enough about what I'm talking about. And she had to go in and mediate a conversation between some indigenous uh, tribes in the local area and her city council or something like that, some governmental group. And Mm. it was very acrimonious. They were not happy with each other. And she knew this going in. And as she walked into this huge boardroom, you know, there was like, you know, 
12 people on both sides of the table. She could feel the tension in the air and she just remembered some of this training. She said, okay, you know, we'll go around the table and we live in such a beautiful town that was down in New Zealand. And she's like, why don't we just talk, just answer the question, what do you really love about this town that we live in? Mm. And so one by one, they answered all the way around the table. And by the time they started coming back towards her, everyone was smiling and laughing. Mm. It was like they found a place that they all had a common ground. But they, she also knew that they were actually activating oxytocin in their body. <laughs> and mm. so then she started the meeting from there. And it had a completely different outcome. And, you know, it went much smoother than it would have had she not done something like that. Isn't, isn't that a lovely, lovely message? And it's such, such a simple philosophy. Yeah. And we're, we're very much fans of that, that idea. But sitting there with your team, even if it's only once a month and having just a human conversation. And sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that the conversation has to be like really focused on well-being in order for it to affect your well-being. But, you know, I mean, this comes back to caring, you know, connect human to human, show that you genuinely care. How are you feeling? How's your family? How's your, you know, your, how are your children doing? And especially now with everything going on in the world, um, people need that even more. So I find they need to be able to connect with each other and to understand that, you know, hey, we're all going through some interesting challenges right now. Yeah. What can we do to make it better? <laughs> well, as, as we talk, there's particularly interesting times for the US of A. And, you know, we're, we're bombarded with negativity all the time at the moment. I mean, everything in the news, we've got pandemics, we've got this like civil unrest in America, you know, threats of civil war, you've got... Brexit, there's terrorist organizations, there's all sorts of things going on that all you ever hear about is negative, negative, negative. And it's so important for all of us to check out. And as leaders, it's so important to check out and help our people check out and remind everyone that, I mean, from my perspective, I don't know what you feel about this, but I, I'm a big believer in the kind of the focus on what we have control over. And, and, and you know, like from a sporting perspective, we always talk about staying in the moment, staying present. And the basic principle of staying present is you don't carry the anxiety of what's gone wrong in the past. You stop worrying about what's going to happen in the future because that's utterly ridiculous because you've no control. And the only thing you can control is how you're acting in this current moment. And would that be something that would be at the heart of kind of your philosophies when it comes to engagement? Um, Yeah, it's definitely a part of what we talk about as well, because, um, you know, it's only in this current moment that you can really make a huge impact. And so it's really a lot about, you know, mindfulness, being present. And I often say, you know, for every negative thing that comes in, you've got to counterbalance it with three to five positives because we get so bombarded by negativity. And that's something that you have to make as a conscious decision. And I mean, it's a very simple thing. I mean, look, you're in Ireland, I'm in Sweden. We both have sunny days today. Oh my God, we have something to be grateful for. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) You know, simple as that. It doesn't require a lot of time or effort or energy. It's just, it's a mindset shift involves an awareness and it involves a conscious deliberate choice to think and want to want to change your thoughts in that way and that's actually a really interesting point and it's something that you and your personal life have had you know consider considerable mindset shifts you know and consider <laughs> challenges on your mindset and i love the fact that you're laughing now because like your story is so remarkable you know for for the average human being so incredibly difficult to get their head around but Maybe, um, and I don't want to, 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 to belittle your story by wrapping it all up in a couple of minutes, but I'm very conscious of the fact that, you know, you don't want to continuously revert back to living in your past. But I do think it's a really important point because I think for people to understand where you are now 
they need to understand what happened to you and how you found this remarkable strength to be to 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 channel your mindset in us in, in the way you have. Um, so could could you tell tell us a little bit about the experience you had? You know, maybe maybe just tell us a little bit about the experience you had first, and then we can kind of talk Dissect. about how you got to here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and and to be honest I mean that is really the catalyst for why I do what I do today. So um I really went through a four year crisis of having to practice what I preach about shifting your mindset, shifting your emotions and all of that. And the the very condensed version of a very long and complicated story was that years ago I had my my first husband who I'd married was a professional con man and very abusive. And I divorced him. I moved to Sweden and found out that everything he had told me was lies. And so I rebuilt my life here in Sweden. And then basically, I think it was like six years later, I was uh, working with my business, ready to expand it. I had a business mentor in the US. And I went on a trip there because um, I am half American, half Swedish. We didn't clarify that. <laughs> anyway, so I had this fantastic week in the US. Everything was like just top of the world, top of the game. Everything was falling into place. And right as I was getting ready to board the plane to come back to home to continue with my business, um, I actually got arrested and I got taken into custody. And it was my first husband who had used my name on his fraudulent business activities. And I got taken into high security jail where I actually sat for 1,352 days, which is just short of four years. And it was a nightmare. My children, my daughters at that time were six and eight, so I missed out on that time with them. And it was really a day-to-day battle for me to try and stay in a positive frame of mind during those four years. I can imagine, yeah. I mean, I was reading everything I could get my hands on, um, practicing all the the exercises I could think of, and, and really just focusing in on... You know, it was really a choice between the fear of the worst that could happen or the love of my family. And mm-hmm. anytime those fearful emotions, anger, frustration, depression, sadness, all of those took over me, I would just switch over and I'd play this movie of my charges are dropped, I'm released, I get to go home, I get to return to my family and be a mom. And um, in the end, that's exactly what ended up happening. So it was a really long and uh, difficult time in my life. But I learned so much, and um, I knew when I came home that I was not supposed to be doing what I was doing with, with my previous business, but that I was supposed to teach people what I'd learned. And I didn't mm-hmm. know how that was going to happen. <laughs> and so another two years passed, but basically ended up writing a book called Engage. Mm-hmm. And that book was kind of the entry into the corporate world to bring what I had practiced as on a personal level with myself and my family that I knew for a fact worked because I was doing it, for example, gratitude, um, you know, that this stuff actually works. And then we found, you know, a lot of um, research behind it that actually backed it up. And so that became basically the book Engage. And then that took me on the path to start the work that I do now, which is, you know, with Evolution Academy and transforming company cultures and transforming people's lives. It, it is. I mean, it, the thing that I find amazing, obviously I'm, you know, I come at everything from a psychology point of view, but what I find amazing is um, not, not, not to dwell too long on it, but, but to be in a, in a jail cell. And I think what's important for people to understand is you weren't in a prison cell. You didn't have a court hearing. You didn't have a trial. There wasn't a conviction. This was all pending you being extradited to Mexico and there was all legal loopholes around whether you were 
eligible or, or, or going to be extradited or not. And wasn't the prob- part of the problem was that they couldn't let you board a plane to Sweden because they were considered at a flight risk and yeah. there was different extradition rules and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So basically, you spent almost four years in limbo, sitting Absolutely. in a jail cell. Um, so, like, I mean, obviously, for, for any normal human being, bitterness, anger, depression, upset, I mean, not being able to see your, your, your children, all of these things have to have a massive impact on your mindset. So what was it about that experience that on release you were able to channel yourself into writing? Because I think you just said there was two years later that you wrote the book. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, two, and for anyone who, I mean, I've been working on a book for about five years. <laughs> anyone who's written a book will know that there's, you know, there's a significant process in building a book. Like, so to get from the relief, joy, whatever, you, you insert the words that are appropriate to your mood when you got released, um, to creating a book that was about engagement and increase and improving people's lives. How did your mindset get to there from uh, what would be the normal human emotion of you wanted to kill the guy? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So first of all, while I was there, I did a lot of this, what I call inner work. So forgiveness was one of a key component for me to be able to, you know, not come out as a bitter person. Mm -hmm. Um, the mental training of playing this movie in my mind of visualizing myself coming out and being with my kids. And I just, I wanted, when I came home, it was like, I wanted to immerse myself in a lot of positive things, things that inspired me and where I could inspire others and just as much positive environment intake, all of it as much as possible. Cause I was in such a dark environment for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really was part of it. And then, um, you know, I mean, it took me the first year, I couldn't even talk about my story without crying. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was in deep therapy and really mm-hmm. working through it, um, and trying to, you know, find my way back in some way. And, um, you know, it was, it was a long process and I didn't realize they told me when I started the therapy that it, whatever length of your crisis was, it's going to take that long for you to heal. And mm. I was like, no freaking way. Is this going to take me four years to heal from this? <laughs> there is no way I've got too much in me. I want mm. to like do so much now because I was so held back basically. But in the, in the end, I mean, for the entire family, it, it did take that and a little bit longer in terms of really healing and, and coming back to kind of our normal selves. Um, so I think there's, there's with, with any crisis, you do need to, respect the healing process and as human beings we just we have to process those emotions and if we don't process it it gets stuck in our body somewhere and that Mm -hmm. can lead to disease or it could lead to you know all sorts of problems and it can lead to those things coming back into your life because i believe whatever challenge we go through there's always a lesson there and if you don't learn the lesson it's going to come back yeah um and i've just i've noticed patterns in my own life so um you know, now it's like, I freaking learned that lesson. It's not yeah. coming back. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to take a moment to let you know that all the podcast episodes are available on peptalkhq.com forward slash podcast. That's peptalkhq.com forward slash podcast. Here you'll find some embedded podcast players, show notes, guest bios, and links to additional resources. So head on over to peptalkhq.com forward slash podcast. But it, but it, but it is. I mean, it's, it's. Look, it, you know, to, to, not to, 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 
belittle what your experience but i mean it it's a thing that i would work on with, with athletes all the time was that idea about you know learning from your mistakes that it's your mistakes that make you better at what you do if you can't embrace your mistakes and also your successes it's a, you know quite often with our successes we learn nothing because the success is just great and but it's that kind of thing about experiences in life and our response to them dictate what we do with the rest of our lives and so many people are hamstrung by things that have happened to them in the past and what i think is really remarkable about you and one of the things i love talking about talking to you is that kind of there is no sense of bitterness like you have every right to be but when you talk about forgiveness and you talk about gratitude and you talk about you know culture and, and basically you've devoted your life and your business since then to improving the culture and the lives and the communication of people. How much of that has contributed to your healing, would you say? A lot. When the book Engage came out, I spent about a year speaking. And it, it's just like um, when I share my story, I will often have people coming up to me and saying, it just touches their heart. And they say, you know, wow, I can't believe you've gone through that. And, you know, I haven't gone through anything like that, but I'm going through this. And then they open up and they share with me what they are going through. And one of the things that I found is that when people hear my story, they can use it as a reflection pack like, oh, well, I thought my life was bad, but it's not that bad. So it automatically puts them in a state of gratitude and appreciation for where they are, regardless of the, the situation. So, and that is a healing process for me because it makes me feel like those four years did not go to waste. You know, mm -hmm. I can, I can, I can use it as a catalyst to inspire people to make them realize that, wow, I can get through this too. So it's, it's been a major part of the healing process. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because when you go through trauma, it sits in your cells. And if you don't process it, you will have some sort of a emotional reaction. But if you process it, it becomes a story. It's a part of the tapestry of your life if you process it enough, it, it doesn't have that visceral feeling anymore, you know? And so, I mean, I do share my story quite a bit because I use it to, one, explain why I do what I do, but two, to inspire people to make them realize like, oh, you know, like the lockdown situation we're going through right now in so many countries. I had so many friends come to me while the first, you know, in back in March of 2020, basically saying, you have so much experience with lockdown. Can't you start like telling people what you did to survive. And so I, I have, I've, I've put out, you know, some classes on resiliency and, and things like that and just teach people what I was using during that time. And it, it, mm -hmm. it helps so much. Um, you know, I just finished a, a training with a whole company, all the employees taking it and the, the module that the, the session that they liked the most was the resiliency and care. And it was yeah. like, Oh wow. Okay. That one really hit home. And it is, you know, it's a fascinating thing because resilience has become a word that is, is it, it's very popular at the moment. There's a logical reason for it because I feel like personally anyway, and I know in Ireland we introduced this well-being or wellness program into schools for kids. And, I, and sometimes people feel this is a little bit controversial, but I feel like it's not necessarily the right message to tell kids that it's good to be, you know, good to talk about being depressed. It's okay to be depressed because it's absolutely fundamentally not okay to be depressed. It sucks. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with you. You know, like what I, I, like, you know, I've been in dark places in my life. I've had experiences that challenged me in many different ways. 
And I found a way through them. And absolutely, you need to talk about things when you're having a tough time. But this idea of telling kids, you know what, you know, you know, we, we can all get depressed and you should sit down and have a chat with each other about it, is actually the wrong message in my view. What we should be teaching them is that life is tough and these horrible things happen, but there are things you can do to navigate them. And, and, and really it's about, you know, instead of telling them that it's okay to be depressed, we should be telling them stories like yours and saying, you can go through the most horrible things in your life, but human beings are remarkably resilient. Yes. And it's about, you know, I go back to the Epictetus quote that I come up with all the time, that it's not the event, but your opinion of it, which causes suffering. That's a very flippant and easy thing for me to say when I wasn't in a jail cell for four years. And I don't believe maybe I'm wrong. And we all kind of, we all have capacity to deal with things that we don't necessarily think we can. But you came through something and you've channeled it in a way that you've actually helped your healing by helping other people, which I think is a really wonderful and remarkable thing to do. Plus, it's a very good business model. And, you know, and there's nothing wrong with the fact that, you know, if you can make some money out of it on the way, it's a good news good new story already. But with your kind of experience and the, the, the tools that you've used, when it comes to resilience, what do you think are the key messages, whether it's for the corporate world or for kids or whatever, in your mind when it comes to resilience and what your lessons are from your own personal experience, what is it that you think is the key to resilience? Wow, that's a really good question. I think part of it is exactly what you stated with that quote, is that you have to reframe what's happening in your life. So for example, one of the things that I often say is the quality of your life is dependent on the quality of the questions you ask. So for example, when I went into this whole ordeal and it started, I was really down and I was asking myself questions like, you know, how, how could this happen to me? And why was I so stupid to fall in love with this man? And, you know, all these disempowering victim mentality questions. And over the months and years as I was reading different books and getting inspired and things like that, I found that if I changed the question, instead of why is this happening to me, why is this happening for me, I would get different answers and I would mm -hmm. actually feel better. And so my questions switched to, you know, what's the lesson here? How can I help others? Who am I meant to, you know, help or support today? And, and I just, I was able to shift my mind mentally to say, you know, I, part of it was surrendering like, okay, I'm here today. I can't change anything about it. What can I do to make the day better today? Mm -hmm. And so it was just things like that, that made me realize, wow, I have so much power inside of me that I can change the way I feel just by changing my thoughts or my emotions and, and changing the words that I'm using. And that was incredibly powerful. Um, so that I think is a real key in terms of resiliency is the quality of the questions you ask change the quality of your life. Second one, I would say we come back again to gratitude. That was one of the most powerful things that I did every night before I went to bed. I was thinking, and I still do to this day, you know, three to five things I'm grateful for. When I wake up in the morning, I hit the snooze button one time so that I can go through my gratitude and kind of set the tone for the day. And I know that by doing that, and it's a habit now, it just happens automatically, but it, it puts me in a more positive frame of mind. So when you start the day in a positive frame of mind, guess what? if something happens, it's not going to affect you as much as if you work up mm -hmm. on the wrong side of the bed, so to speak, you know? And it's little, I call them life hacks. Those little things yeah. that you can do that shift your life. And they're simple. Lovely. And, and, and one of the things I'd, I'd be interested in, because I'm sure anyone listening to this will be thinking about this 
you know, horrific experience and this wonderful kind of phoenix from the flames like uh, story. But there has to be times when you have a day where it eats back into you a little bit or there's a little bit of negativity or there's a memory of an, of an event while you were locked up, you know, and you've told me before about the fact that like you were like literally like in a cell 23 hours of the day and one hour you got up on the roof for some sunshine. Like yeah. it's unthinkable and it's unthinkable that it happened in a developed Western world country. But, you know, I mean, you, you, like I, I, I've spoken to you before. I, I, remember reading reading about um, a captain in the U.S. Air Force during the Vietnam War, a guy called Gerald Coffey, who got shot down in Vietnam and he ended up a prisoner of war. And he ended up in a six-by-six six cell for, I think it was six years. I'm not sure. Obviously, being a prisoner of war in Vietnam, the treatment wasn't brilliant. But his cape coping mechanism was he channeled the game of golf. He's himself and his buddies just play every Saturday. So he would literally spend, he would get up in the morning and he would, it became a thing that's in, in, in performance psychology called active visual, visualization. But it's not just that you, you visualize yourself doing something, but he actually would, would visualize him getting up in the morning, going to the routine of getting dressed, preparing, putting the clubs in the car, driving to the club. He would visualize everything, meeting the guys, playing around the golf shot by shot, conversations, walking, the whole thing. And he would build the whole thing into his day. And that's his way of coping, which ironically he claims made him a better golfer when he got out <laughs> because he played so much in his head. But when you're in those days, or are you in those days where some negativity or some little flashback or some memory of a traumatic event comes back to you, how do you stop that from taking over? First of all, the active visualization was something that I used every single day. So I completely believe in it. And the power that we have with our minds is pretty phenomenal when you learn how to work with it and how to kind of channel it so that you focus that energy. Um, it's one of those incredibly powerful things that we have. It's like a, <laughs> I can't remember what story this was exactly, but basically, you know, there was a gift that we were going to have and, and, you know, it's an Indian story. So I don't remember, but like the maker, the great maker was going to hide it somewhere. And then the, the crow said, well, hide it in the clouds. And like, no, 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 they'll find it there. And, and the mole said, oh, we'll hide it down in the ground and we'll find it there. And the fish said, hide it in the water. And then finally it was like, no, hide it inside of them that'll be the last place they look for it. <laughs> right? Yeah, love it. And it's true. We have this innate power within us that people, you know, just maybe aren't aware of. So for me, handling any difficult situation, I mean, I'm, I've practiced this stuff on a daily basis for so long. It's like, it's like muscles. And so any negative thing that happens to me, I'm able to turn it around really quick. But it's because I'm, I've practiced and I have so many tools to handle it. And that's not to say that I don't get sad or I don't get depressed or I don't get any of those. Of course I do. We're human beings and we all have emotions. Mm -hmm. um, one of the tools I developed um, partially while I was in the jail experience was what I call a joyometer, which people can get at my personal website. Um, and it's basically like um, a list of our emotions and we have positive emotions and we have like negative emotions and we are like a spiral we'll go up and down these emotions and that's our human experience so do i get mad occasionally yeah do i stay mad long no i you know it's not going to serve me why should i stay mad long um so it's just being having that um, uh, emotional awareness of yourself i guess it's also related to the emotional intelligence as mm -hmm. you know that body of work too um but when you have tools you just pull them out you pull them out when you need them 
and they work. <laughs> then you move yeah. on. And and I think that's really part of the powerful work that we do with evolution because that those tools are weaved into all of our training. So when I said, you know, it's on an individual level and then it goes to the team and organizational level, it's because it does. It empowers each individual and then it's up to them, their responsibility to have that emotional awareness and to start to use these tools. And when you use the tools over and over again, it becomes a habit and then you, you become a better person because you're able to handle situations better and have better conversations and, you know, manage stress in a much better way. Perfect. So yeah, there's just Brilliant. there's a whole lot behind it, and, and I'm kind of a geek when it comes to this <laughs> research. So I love discovering yeah. like scientific stuff that backs up what I know works. Yeah, because then I can get it through to people because I know from a personal experience it works. But then hey, here's the neuroscience, or hey, here's the you know whatever the psychological report, or yeah. you know. So it's all that's absolutely brilliant. No well, thank problem. you so much. I really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. I'm glad Great we got chat. this done. Yeah. You thank you. Bye. Oh, it's Gus time again. How's it going, man? Good. And you, Niall? I live in the dream, kid. Live in the dream. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's fair to say that Karen's story is pretty remarkable. Uh, what, what, what did you take away from it? I, I just, I'm just amazed at her uh, strength to be still kind of willing to just talk to people about what she went through because it sounds like. A horrific story. I think she turned it into something. She turned it into something, yeah. into something incredibly positive. And you know, I mean, to add to the the weight of how horrific the story is, like she had, she had a daughter who was, I think she, the daughter, her daughter was eight or nine at the time. So that's like four years, formative years of that kid's life, that that her mom is taken away from her for no fault of her own. Mm. Like it's it's beyond uh, unimaginable. But you're right. It is that that ability to to channel um, to channel the experience into something positive. When you know you hear it all the time in sport, where managers come out after getting hammered in a game and they go, oh, "We take a lot of positives from it," and you kind of go, "Yeah, really." Yeah. But in order to like to take positives from a four-year jail sentence or something you didn't do is um, is kind of remarkable. And I think it all comes back to her. Like she has this lovely thing where she talks about the quality of questions you ask yourself. And I think that was actually, that was one of the points I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. So the, yeah, go on to, to talk about the quality of questions. Yeah. I just, I, I just kind of feel like it's, it's a way for us to change our perspective on things. If you think about the way you ask you, the way you talk to yourself, we all have this inner critic and you know, we're all, you know, very hard on ourselves. And you often, and I, I'm always using the phrase now, be kind to yourself. And it's really just about how you speak to yourself. But changing your perspective on something, I mean, it would be very easy for her in that situation to spend every day in a jail cell being a victim, hating the person who put her there, you know, planning vengeance and, you know. Um, and, and in reality, what she did was she started asking her questions about, well, what can I do with my life when I get out of here? I think she said, instead of asking, why did this happen to me? She says, why did this happen for me? That she yeah. The, yeah. yeah, which is a brilliant question. And it also is kind of like, if you stop and think about it, it's, it's what does it mean for you? You know, if you're facing something really, really difficult in your life. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I used to struggle with parents and I worked in a few sports like gymnastics where parents would get very caught up in the whole thing about, you know, it's not fair that my kid didn't get to go to the Olympics. 
And it's a really difficult conversation to have with them because it's not, sometimes it's not fair. But whoever said life was fair? You know, and we, 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 we get caught up in these things sometimes that, you know, oh, well, you know, it, you know, it, it's not fair that this happened to me. And you're kind of going, it isn't, but it happened to you. And you have a choice. It's, you know, like there's that old Shawshank Redemption line about get busy living or get busy dying. You know, if you're going to carry the burden of the event that's happened to you, without ever considering, well, you know, what does this mean for my future? For what does this mean for the rest of my life? Um, how can I learn from this or what can I use this for? I mean, what Karen has done is she's taken the learnings from this event and she's gone and built this. I mean, her company are now in the top 10 HR influencers in the world where she's going into companies, speaking about being more human, understanding culture and conversation and all these things that she had time to think about that were missing in her life before this event happened. And because this event happened, she is now enormously successful in her career and she's happy and she's remarried and she's got a good life. Um, and none of this probably would have happened if she hadn't had that horrendous experience. And sometimes, you know, we have to be willing to face down the tough stuff in order to be happy and successful and achieve what it is we want to achieve. The second point, I think just kind of follows on nicely from what you're talking about there. Second point is that um, Shem, Jack, yourself, Amory, Larry have all mentioned a book by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, which I haven't read it, full disclosure, I haven't read it, but there seems to be a lot of parallels between his thought process when he was in the concentration camp during World War II and what happened to Karen. Yeah. Is that, is that fair? Oh, it is, yeah. And I mean, um, Christian Bush, who's another guest in this season, speaks like his whole Serendipity Mindset book, which is a bestseller, came from, you know, oh, his whole career was born out of reading and search for meaning. Um, because the remarkable thing about the Viktor Frankl book is that he's in one of the most unimaginably horrific human experiences you can have. And yet he's finding you know, it sounds very glib to say he's finding positives, but he's finding some insight into who he is as a human. And he's finding peace and he's finding the potential for happiness and success out of the most horrendous ordeal. If you can find positive, uh, introspective messaging out of an experience like that, Jesus, we can find it in anything. I was just about to say, like, if, if a guy in a concentration camp and a lady in a jail can come out with those positive outlooks or those outputs, like, surely we can do it in a nine to five, Monday to Friday. Like, we can turn that kind of, you know, dumpster fire of a project we're working on and work, you know, flip it on its head, change the questions, you know, and, and turn it into something positive or turn Absolutely. our perspective on it. And if positive. you think about, like, like, just on the quality of questions thing, I mean, imagine if you're, like, whatever situation you're in, whatever stressful situation you're in. And sometimes we can get into very dark places in our heads when we're under pressure. But imagine if you were to ask yourself the question about, you know, is this insurmountable? Is this really as bad as it can get? And you think about people like Viktor Frankl and Karen, um, and you think about what they've been through, and both of them would say it could get worse. And if you know it could get worse, that also means it could get better. And it just gives you that opportunity to take control of your own life. And I, I, I personally find that kind of inspiring. You know? 
And then the last point I wanted to ask you is one of the things she said early on in the conversation was just around the analytics. Like it's like, I'm sure you had this when you were a sports psychologist and, and a mental skills co coach with athletes. Mm. Like people asking, well, what is the, you know, put, it, put a benefit on your work with the athlete. What's the output or what's the result? Um, and it was it was kind of heartening to hear Karen talk about uh, there are now analytics behind things like trust uh, and companies that have um, a high trust environment uh, typically perform 300% better than companies without or with a low trust environment. And I just thought that's, that must be reassuring for people who are thinking about embarking on programs like this, that there is an actual measure, an output, an ability to put a number beside the work that Karen would do and say you would do in, 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 with, you know, in psychology and mental skills. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, like, I mean, I mentioned Christian earlier on, but also like um, Karen references the, the statistics and the research of Paul Zak, who's a professor who also appears in season two. Um, and really, you know, what is the pursuit of trust in the workplace? But it's about, you know, I always talk about, you know, great leaders care. And some people think, oh, God, here we go. You know, we're all going to whole s'mores around the campfire singing kumbaya or something and actually you know a leader who cares about you is a leader who has enough respect for you to tell you the truth to give you feedback that actually gives you something to work with so if you aren't doing particularly well in your job at least they're giving you guidance they're not telling you what you want to hear and then talking differently about you behind your back and from that kind of trust and that culture um like the research is telling us that that companies are 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 three hundred percent more likely to be successful with a tr with a trust environment. And what is culture? You know, we talk about culture all the time, and there's there's you know, corporate culture and sporting culture and team culture and all these different things. And really, culture is about your relationships. It's human to human interactions. It's your ability to have genuine conversations with people. Um, and a guy. Um, that will appear in, in future seasons is a very good friend of mine, a coach called Craig Fulton, who's involved with the Belgium team, who, uh, Belgium hockey team, who are the first team in history to hold the European world and Olympic titles at the same time. And they built this enormous culture of trust. And part of that culture of trust was the fact that they respected each other enough to be honest with each other. So when things weren't good enough, they let each other know and there was no holding back. And they know that when they empty themselves in a dressing room, that everyone will listen because everyone in that dressing room is willing to push themselves to the, the you know, the, the, the nth degree to achieve success. And that's kind of, I mean, Karen has pushed herself, you know, when you think about what she's been through to achieve what she's achieved now. But really what she's doing is she's saying, you know, how much of our lives could be better if we actually had conversations where we trust each other. And how many of us can honestly say that we trust the people we work with? We trust what they say personally, and we trust what they say in the office in relation to our performance. And how cool would it be if we knew that everyone in the office was pulling in the same direction? Absolutely, yeah, I think that's a great place to leave it. That's, that's a phenomenal and lovely point to go out on. Thanks a million. Cool. On behalf of Nyla Carroll and all of us at Pep Talk, thanks for listening. And don't forget, you can find all the show notes at peptalkhq.com forward slash podcast. 
That's peptalkhq.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you in the next episode.